Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Midrash NYC Podcast. I'm Jonathan Williams, and today we are excited to present to you our newest podcast with my friend, Corey Stern. Corey is a lawyer here in New York City, but more importantly, Corey is the lead counsel for all plaintiffs maintaining claims in the Circuit Court of Genesee County for personal injuries and property damage sustained as a result of the Flint water crisis. In layman's terms, Corey is the lead counsel for everyone who has been affected by the Flint water crisis. It's an important case, and we're excited that we get a chance to talk with Corey about this case. We get to hear from him about what's happening in Flint since we first found out about the water crisis in 2014. We're talking to him about his next project, which is a class action lawsuit against New York City and its housing authority over lead-based paint in their buildings. And we continue to talk to Corey about how faith actually plays a role in the kind of law he practices and the justice that he pursues. We hope you enjoy our podcast with my friend, lawyer Corey Stern. Corey, um, actually, the first question that I want to ask you is, is how did the Flint case come to you? Or if that's too simplistic a way of phrasing it, then how did you get involved in it? Let's start at the very beginning of this. Yeah, so um, I represent my, my career has been has been in representing kids who are either uh, brain damaged from lead poisoning or victims of sexual abuse. Generally speaking, that's that's the the majority of the cases that I've handled over the duration of my career. And you know, my my experience with lead poisoning cases and brain damage comes well before the Flint water crisis happened and was known to the public. So there was a day in uh, late 2015, early 2016, when a woman from Michigan called me and told me she must have found me on Google, you know, Googling, you know, lead poisoning lawyers. And I was in New York. She was in Michigan. She called me and said, you know, I've got three kids and they were all poisoned in a homeless shelter in Flint, Michigan from drinking water. And my experience prior to that with lead poisoning has always been uh, children who ingest lead from paint dust or paint chips. So the water part of this was a little uh, extraordinary and also seemed um, you know, just a bit outside the norm. Uh, I wasn't at the time licensed to practice law in Michigan. Um, I felt as though the case was, was either not really a case or not something I would handle. Told her I'd look into it and get back to her. Uh, I kind of let it go for a couple days. And um, both my wife and my paralegal had read something online about Flint and started bugging me about why would I not try and be involved in that. And I had already received a call from the woman. I did my own research at that point. This was before mm. this was before Flint became a huge national story. Uh, but I, I saw enough uh, that I believe there was some really there was some there there. And mm-hmm. I called the woman back. I begged her to let me represent her. Uh, she laughed at me considering I already told her I probably couldn't and I wasn't licensed in Michigan, but ended up hiring me. I flew to Michigan um, about two weeks later and Rachel Maddow was having a town hall at one of the local elementary schools broadcast live on MSNBC. I flew there specifically to try and get in there. I couldn't get a ticket. It wasn't really for lawyers. So I stripped out of my suit 
put on a pair of jeans and a t-shirt and a backwards baseball cap. <laughs> I went to the town hall. I realized pretty quickly that a lot of the information that was being provided to the families and the community that were there was not accurate information. Like if we just feed our kids more lettuce and leafy greens, then the lead they've ingested isn't a big deal. Or if we mm. get more school nurses or school aides, then none of this is really a big deal. I didn't love what I heard. I went back to my partners at my office in New York. I explained that I felt if we did not become more involved in Flint, then, you know, what good were we if this was the type of case routinely anyway, and it was my specialty. They agreed, and I started going to Flint three or four days a week for about 10 months. I spoke wow. at every church where anybody would have me. I spoke at every school where anybody would have me. Uh, I had people come into a local office that, uh, you know, I used with the help of some local lawyers and anybody that wanted to talk would talk to me. And, you know, a year, two, three, four years later, we now have 25, 2600 children that we represent individually. And it was very much kind of a grassroots on the ground year of my life, you know, spent in Flint, uh, just trying to educate folks and, uh, made myself available to help. And, and that's, that's sort of the short story for how it happened. And so even, and so stepping back even further, I mean, you're lead counsel in the Genesee County Circuit Court and liaison counsel in the U.S. District Court in the Eastern District of Michigan uh, for all the plaintiffs in the Flint water litigation. And you are personally representing more than 2,500 children who were poisoned by lead in their drinking water. You've got a lot of responsibility. You're, you're you know, as you say, you're kind of a big deal. But every journey kind of starts with a first step. And you've, and you've outlined a little bit like uh, how you started in this because of the background you already had. But what got you involved in that, what got you not even just into law, but specifically the focus that you have where it's, um, you know, vulnerable people, specifically vulnerable children? Yeah, I mean, first of all, you said I'm a big deal, not me. I mean, just because two judges, just because two two judges in Michigan get drunk and put me in charge of a litigation doesn't make me a big deal. It just means that they probably need to stop drinking. Um, you know, but to your to your point, um you know, I think it's it's hard sometimes to to look backward and pinpoint a, a moment in time where we become exactly who we are. And I think that's true, whether it's in the legal community or in the, you know, in the religious community, whether it's in, a, a, you know, the medical community. But for me, I was raised by uh, divorced parents who who split up when I was, you know, a year old or younger uh, my mom was uh, uh, at the time, you know, working three or four jobs uh, to try and make ends meet. My dad was a, a, a middle school history teacher for inner city kids. Uh, the man that became my stepdad at a very young age was a police officer. And I think I just kind of lived in households where we, we never really wanted for anything, but we also didn't have much. And all of my all of my parents, you know, all, all of them, including my step parents from a young age, they just sort of raised me to try and be really nice to people and to treat people kindly. And I never really saw colors. I never really saw sexual orientation, even at a very young age. And as I grew up, you know, I read a lot. I, I read To Kill a Mockingbird when I was in high school and thought that Atticus Finch was, you know, the greatest man that I had ever heard of besides my dad and my <laughs> stepdad. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I, I guess I just sort of had a 
liberal bend to me in terms of social justice. And I never once said at any particular point, I want to be a lawyer that represents vulnerable people. I just wanted to be Atticus Finch. And then when I became a lawyer, I just found these these crevices, these nooks and crannies to sort of push myself into where it felt good to do the work and where I was always proud to tell my parents and ultimately my kids about what my job was and what I did for a living. And like everybody else's job and, and, and profession, it, it evolved. And so, you know, there was a period of time where like Atticus Finch, I was representing you know, uh, alleged felons in criminal cases, not because I necessarily believed that they weren't guilty, but because I believed that everybody was innocent until they were proven guilty. And I felt like even the most crimes that may have been committed by people deserve to have representation from someone who believed in the process. So it was an evolution. And, you know, I'm really proud to say where I am, but it this is why, or this is why it's, it's just a culmination of parents, friends, how you're raised, and then just finding within yourself, the things that sort of make you tick and, and, and make you feel good about what you do every day. So Corey, uh, you know, we know a lot about Flint at this point, uh, maybe not as much as back as, as back when you started, but, uh, over 50% of Flint, uh, is African-American. We know that one out of every four people who live there are living below the poverty line. You know, how much do you feel like uh, racial, socioeconomic factors affect um, affect this case specifically? And then just uh, so what's the story behind that in terms of thinking about America? I mean, this seems to happen uh, in places that, that do have uh, uh, minority ethnicities and places where uh, socioeconomic levels are lower. What's your what's your take on that? I, I believe that. You know, just if I if I were trying to explain it to my 10 and 11 year old sons, you know, I would start with this, that what happened in Flint, Michigan, very likely would never have happened in Merrick, Long Island or in East Bloomfield, Michigan or in, um, you know, just just more affluent communities in in various states, you know, in the same way that Newark, New Jersey presently has what will ultimately be a pretty big lead problem with their water that wouldn't have happened in a more affluent community in New Jersey. And, you know, why, why is that? I mean, it, it's, it's, it's more socioeconomic than I think it is racial, uh, though race often plays a role in, in our country in socioeconomic discrepancies. And, Oftentimes, those people who socioeconomically don't have a voice when it comes to politics or their voices is, is sort of dimmed or muted when it comes to politics, they're the most oppressed people because they don't have anybody to speak for them as passionately and powerfully as do folks with money. And so in Flint, it was a perfect storm of, of bad circumstances. You have a primarily African-American community that socioeconomically as a whole, the community suffers with, uh, you know, a governor who was from a more affluent part of the state. Flint wasn't really, and Genesee County isn't really part of his constituency at any point in time. The leaders in Flint have always had uh, somewhat of a tumultuous relationship with the government, with the state government and with the governor, and they were unable to really speak for themselves in a meaningful way until such time as it was so apparent that the water was bad, that people didn't have a choice but to listen to them. And if, it, it, you know, ironically, if it wasn't for 
some some community leaders and ultimately some moms in the community who were able to speak out and decided to speak out and sort of put their own lives and reputations and families' reputations at risk uh, probably wouldn't have come to light as quickly as it did. So I think that we live in a society where politics and being reelected and um, maintaining, you know, one status in government oftentimes trumps whether it's no pun intended, but oftentimes trumps whether uh, politicians will prioritize certain communities or certain crises over others. And when you have a crisis in a more affluent community in Michigan versus a crisis in a community where the governor and, and state government's constituents don't really reside, I, you know, sadly, but not surprisingly, the community that's more affluent and has more cachet with the political leaders at that time are oftentimes going to be prioritized over, over the weaker and lesser versions in the eyes of those politicians. So then who, I mean, this is probably an oversimplified question, but who is, I mean, to blame for what happened here? How much of the blame can be laid at the feet of uh, the state of Michigan, how much is neglect from the federal government, and how much is even non-governmental agencies, which is stuff that we don't consider, you know, reading the news, we just kind of think like, oh, this is a problem with the city of Flint, and we just kind of leave it at that. So there's there's tons of blame to go around, and, you know, just, just to back up a minute, in, in very, you know, very quickly, what happened in Flint was as follows. The city of Flint was pretty poor and owed money to the government. Because the city of Flint was sort of operating in the red, there was a statute in, in Michigan that allowed the governor to appoint somebody from outside of the community to step in for a city and try and re-budget and reallocate finances in order to take the city out of the red and into the black. When that happened in Flint, and as soon as it happened, the, the government and the appointed emergency manager decided to switch water sources from a very pure and good water source that came from Detroit to the Flint River, which is a terrible water source. And when they sought the expertise of private contractors to make that water switch safe, those private contractors told the city of Flint and told the state government that if you do this switch, it's going to cost you significant money because you have to treat the water with certain chemicals and procedures in order to make it safe, and it may not be the cost savings that you think. The government decided either to ignore that advice or missed that advice, and the contractors that chose to go forward with the job knew they were doing so without the proper treatment to the water. So in that moment in time, both the state and the private contractors were either equally you know, negligent or responsible, or you can split hairs about who's more responsible. And then to compound matters and to make things even more sad and difficult, at various points in time, the state was providing water testing data to the federal government that was inaccurate and at times falsified. And even though the results of the testing didn't add up, the EPA and the federal government chose to turn a blind eye to the testing that they knew couldn't be accurate based on what they were reading and seeing in Flint. And so ultimately, the, the federal government turned a blind eye. The state government messed with the testing and chose not to follow the instructions of the private entities. The private entities, knowing that the water needed treatment, decided to move forward without treating the water despite their expertise. 
And it just was a colossal failure that, again, very likely wouldn't have happened if it was a, if it was in a different community. I, yeah, I had no idea the extent in which, uh, wow, people had to like collude in order to make this happen. Yeah, wow. and it may have been, and it may have been a, it may have been an involuntary collusion if there's such a thing in terms of, you know, I don't think anybody said at the front end, here's what we're going to do, and this is how it's going to go down, and we're going to poison these people. But you know, like, like when back in the day when when Michael Vick was playing quarterback for for the Falcons, and and it came out that he may have been involved in dogfighting. And ultimately, he went to jail for two or two and a half years as a result of his role. I, I always like try and explain, especially if it were to my kids, you know, if Michael Vick had just told the truth the minute anyone asked him and said, you know what, I was a part of this. I grew up in a community where it was OK. I don't know if it's OK. And my sense now from all the coverage of this is that it's not OK. I want to admit that I did it. I had no intention of breaking the law and I didn't realize it was wrong. My guess is he never would have gone to jail. Likewise, here, you know, once the community started speaking out against this, rather than sort of taking responsibility for it or getting to the bottom of it, the state, the federal government, and even the private entity's reaction to it was to double down and insist that the water was good, was to double down and insist that nobody was at risk, was to double down and insist that everybody was going to be fine. And th this was a whole lot to do about nothing. And the, the collusion, to the extent there was any, occurred post-problem. It didn't cause the problem. It was just in reaction to it. Yeah. So, I mean, in, in, that, in that case, Corey, you know, I, I, hear, I hear the fact that there are, you know, private entities, public entities, governments involved, uh, doubling down on the fact that they did nothing wrong, uh, kind of burying their heads in that aspect. Um, you know, that, that creates, and I, I think me, well, I'll speak for my. So that creates in me a, a distrust, number one, of the government, a distrust of, of people who see money as a bottom line. And yet I think in this, uh, in this case, um, not only are you, are you hoping to find justice for so many people afflicted with lead poisoning, but you're bringing hope. So talk about how you can bring hope in a case like this where, you know, my view of the government, my view of the people involved are, you know, it feels hopeless in some sense. So, you know, very, very sadly, the, the, you know, bringing hope as a lawyer to a community of people who are treated this way, it, I mean, it's just really sad. But, you know, the hope they have, I think, at this point is that to the extent their children have been affected and, and been damaged, and, and by damaged, I mean brain damaged in such a way where, you know, educationally, we'll never know what they're capable of because what they've lost is something they've never had, and that's their potential. And so the hope that people have is that folks like me might be able to somehow achieve compensation for children for the work that they may have been able to do, for the education they may have been able to achieve, for the, the professional successes they may have been able to have that, you know, very likely were at least diminished, if not taken completely from them as a result of being lead poisoned or brain poisoned. And so, you know, sadly, the only thing I can do for most people is get them money. And when it comes to more immediate hope, you know, the hope is, is that through these lawsuits, through the litigation, A, people's pipes will be fixed. There's, you know, they're the, into their homes and, and within their homes that their, their water will be made safe because folks will be forced to, to fix and make changes to the infrastructure of their homes. But I don't think anybody in Flint would 
if given, you know, let, let's say I'm able to achieve for the most damaged child $2 million for that child for the rest of their life that can be invested and structured and turned into, a, you know, a future earnings sort of uh, structure where every month or every year they'll receive a certain amount of money. No parent in Flint, no kid in Flint would ever say, sign me up for that. I'd go back and be poisoned all over again. And so the hope is somewhat dulled by the reality that the most injured people in Flint can't be fixed. I mean, there's no cure for it. There's no fix for it. And so the hope is monetary. The hope is infrastructure wise. And the hope is that through the litigation, people's children will have a future that they would have been um, that they would have been capable of having had they never been poisoned. So you've you've kind of even uh, already answered most of, of the next question that I had based on that was basically just how you personally view success in a case like this because I know there are, there, there are certain vocal communities or people who kind of look at a financial settlement in, in a, uh, let's say, a sexual assault case or a domestic abuse case and just kind of their cynical reaction is like, well, if you really wanted justice, if you really, if they really did something wrong, you wouldn't have taken a financial uh, compensation as a result. And and what is your response to that kind of cynical attitude when it comes to a case which is so large and complicated, such as this? Yeah, so it's it's always easy whether you're me or someone looking at me, or whether you're one of my clients or someone looking at my clients. It's really easy to opine and be critical of an end result without knowing sort of everything that goes into and all of the risks associated with achieving that result. And so, for instance, someone might feel like, well, you know, if you're settling a case, then it must mean that you didn't really have the goods or why would you not take it to its conclusion? Well, the reality is, is that there's never a guarantee that you're going to be successful. I mean, for all the things I just said as part of the story about how this happened, the private companies are going to say and have said it's not our fault. We were contracted to do a job. We gave our best advice to the folks who contracted us. And those folks decided to go ahead based on their own expertise in a way that while we didn't recommend, we were obligated to do. So we're off the hook. I don't think it's a good argument, but it's an argument they'll make and you may get a jury that believes it. You've got the state that can say we were relying completely on these private companies. Yeah, they told us it might be better to do it this way or do it that way. But in the end, it was their responsibility to do it the right way. And all we did was pay them to do it. It's not really our decision. It's their decision. So we're off the hook. The state could also say, you know, the federal government, the Environmental Protection Agency has a responsibility to oversee all of this and they drop the ball. The federal government could say we're relying on testing from the state protection from from the from the um, the Michigan Department of Environmental Health. And, you know, they they messed up. And so it's it's always easy watching from 30,000 feet to say what should have, could have, would have happened. I mean, but, but cases like this are not a one hour law and order show. I mean, you know, <laughs> cases like this, we, I've been litigating this case since the beginning of 2016 and we're almost at 2020 and there hasn't been a single dollar that's changed hands from the defendants to the plaintiffs as of yet. And so, you know, it, it's like if, if I were, if I were, trying to give advice because I've seen ER a couple of times to a doctor that's doing crazy brain surgery for someone with a tumor on, on, on one of their, you know, one of their nerves in the brain, I can easily say, I mean, I've seen Clooney do this a thousand times on, on the reruns, but for the doctor doing the surgery, you know, if they make the wrong move, the person could die. And cases are a lot like that. 
Now, so you just said, I mean, you've been working on this case for three years, going into your fourth year. Uh, I, I, I wonder, how are you able to kind of give space to yourself to kind of keep separation? Because you, you've got, you're representing over 2,500 kids. And I just wonder, I mean, I, I have trouble. I, I do, you know, corporate video production. And I have trouble where sometimes I can't leave my job at my job. And there's really no physical human element involved in that. How do you give yourself space to kind of not overtax yourself and to kind of keep up the energy that you that is required to kind of keep pursuing this case as it as it demands being pursued? It's a it's as you know, as most people know, I mean, there's no there's no good answer. And I don't have the I don't have the magic formula. Um, You know, it's very, very hard not to just remain completely immersed in the litigation. I try really, really hard to run a lot, five, six days a week. I try and take my kids to as many Mets games, you know, which, which is even in and of itself, a huge fault in my character and personality that I remain a Mets (laughs) fan. But, you know, I, I try and take my kids to as many Mets games as I can. I try and go on as many dates with my wife as I can. I try and spend as much time with my very close friends as I can. And I still, through all of that, wake up and dream about Flint. And, you know, I get scared that, you know, am I sure that I'm going to be able to achieve a result for all of these people that's that would make their lives better? And I'm sure like like everybody in the world or I imagine like everybody in the world, you know, whether you're producing corporate videos or you're, you know, the pastor of, of a church or you're the lead counsel in a litigation, I'm sure there's a moment in everyone's life, which happens more often than it doesn't, where you look in the mirror and you say to yourself, I can't believe I'm giving this sermon today. How did I get here? Or I can't believe that I've got so much on the line producing this video. How did I get here? I oftentimes say, I can't believe that two judges appointed me to this position or 2,500 families entrusted me with their kids' lives and their and their cases. And it's easy to not be caught up in sort of the muck of all of it and get stagnant because there's so much on the line and there's there's so much to fight for. So on a daily basis, I try and meditate. I try and run. I try and spend time with my kids. I try and put my phone down at night. But until it's over, and I think even after it's over, it's going to be and, and continues to be really hard to put aside. And I think that for the people in Flint, you know, the way they do it, which is really far more important than the way I do it, because I'm just, you know, I'm just their representative. But for the people who really matter, it's the ones that have been hurt by this. So much of them, and it's kind of appropriate for your audience, even though that wasn't why I think you've asked me to come on. But the one thing I learned in Flint is that everyone in that community, for the most part, is involved in a church. And everyone in that community finds comfort in their smaller communities, whether it's you know, uh, illegal immigrants who are members of the Catholic Church who don't speak any English, whether it's, you know, the the Timothy Avenue Baptist Church, you know, whatever the church is there, the first place people went when this crisis hit and they didn't know what to do was to their church, was to their pastors, was to that community. And most of my clients came from me speaking at those places, from, you know, the pastor at this church or a minister at this place, just inviting me to come talk and to sort of share my experience with 
you know, with their community and to see if there's anything I could provide them. It, it wasn't like soliciting. It was just, you tell me what you want to know and I'll tell you. And if, if you don't want me to be your lawyer, you need to find somebody that can help you because here's what I know about these types of cases, about these types of injuries, about this type of litigation. And whether it's me or someone that's more your cup of tea, you need to get someone to help you. And so like in your in your professions, like in everyone's profession, it's really, really hard to find that space for yourself. But all we could do every day is the best we can and try and remember that, you know, this is in our lives, even though it's a huge part of our life. It's funny, you're doing this, um, this litigation. And, uh, and, you know, I, I know you outside of this podcast. And I, I also know that you filed, uh, you know, you filed action against Bill de Blasio, the New York City Housing Authority. So it's like you're going to jump from from you know this Flint water crisis case into uh, the fact that New York City hid the fact that there are tons of apartments uh, that still have lead-based paint with with you know no end in sight. So you know finding energy for that is is one thing. How do you how do you gear up for the next thing that's coming? This this fight against New York City. Um, I I think that you know, when we talked earlier about sort of the Atticus Finch component to, to being a lawyer, at least for me, it's, it's not really hard to gear up. I mean, you know, if I had to, if I did like, you know, different type of law, whether it was like bankruptcy law or law that dealt with taxes, it might be harder for me personally to gear up for the next project because the first project for me may have felt mundane and, you know, just sort of a job. But when it comes to, you know, I've got two kids myself, I've got two sons and, uh, you know, all of them have friends and my friends have kids. And when I think about the fact that I live three quarters of a mile from the projects, even though my community in Carroll Gardens, Brooklyn is considered sort of the top of the Brooklyn food chain, you know, you walk over the BQE, the, the Brooklyn Queens Expressway to Red Hook, and the only difference between those children and my children are the circumstances in which they were brought into the world. And it doesn't matter how busy I am or how busy anyone is. Like, if you see a severe injustice, I think if your profession allows it and your, your conscience sort of dictates it, it's not hard to gear up because all it is is sort of doing your job and participating in something that you're, you were trained to, to deal with, that you're skilled enough to deal with, and that you have an expertise enough to deal with. And so when, when it happened in my backyard, in our backyard, it was really easy to gear up. In fact, my motivation is being able to handle a case like Flint, but not having to get on an airplane three times a week to fly back and forth to Michigan. It's, it's much easier to deal with here at home. But in all seriousness, when, when it comes to these type of things, I'm lucky enough to have an expertise in, in something that not many people do, and that's handling cases for kids that are brain damaged from lead poisoning. And whether it's in Newark, New Jersey, or the Bronx, Brooklyn, Staten Island, Queens, Manhattan, or Flint, Michigan, or Chicago, or anywhere in the country, it's an honor to be in a position where people come to you and ask for help. And I'm sure in many ways, Jonathan, you know, w when you're dealing with your ministry, you know, there's people that probably, and I can never imagine dealing with it, but you know, someone dies and you get a call in the middle of the night, or someone's going through a really hard time in their relationship, either because of, you know, a spouse hurting them physically, emotionally, you know, those are the calls that, that you were trained to take and that your DNA requires you to take because of who you are and what you do and how you think. It's no different for me, other than you're, you're dealing with it from the perspective of, of religion and faith and your role in the church. And I'm dealing with it from a place of faith 
and compassion and empathy and my position as a lawyer. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think for me, and I, I can see that and identify with it, I, I think for me, um, you know, part of my job as a pastor is to get other people involved. You know, so we see we see issues of justice happening in New York or wherever. And we're like, OK, you know, church community, how do we all get up and get involved in this? If somebody uh, in our community, uh, you know, sadly passes away, you know, we get a whole community to surround us and get involved. I know that you talked about some of the churches in Flint being involved. You talked about, um, it, you know, some of the moms stepping up and being involved. We've even had a few celebrities step up and be involved. You know, talk about the, the helpful ways that that you've watched the community get involved in this case. And then for all of us listening, what are ways that we can actually get involved in this kind of justice work? Yeah, so so that's a great question. Um, I think the most important thing that's happened from celebrity involvement, whether it's, you know, Dave Chappelle or whether it's, you know, a- any other celebrity that's given their time or money or water to the community is that it's kept the issue prevalent nationally. And so one of the best and worst things I think that happened with Flint is that it it occurred at a time right before a very big election. And that was the presidential election, uh, you know, when it was when it was the primary between Bernie and Hillary and then obviously, you know, Donald Trump. And leading up to the election, I mean, the, the number of comments and trips that were made to to Flint from both sides was enormous. And it became a real hot issue during the election. Bernie Sanders called for Governor Snyder in Michigan to resign as a result of the Flint water crisis. Hillary Clinton echoed those sentiments. Donald Trump traveled to Flint at some point in time. And as soon as the election was over, that ended. It just stopped. I mean, there, there, were, there were no more visits. And, you know, when when somebody, whether it's, you know, Will Smith's kids or, or you know, uh, athletes who are from from the area, whether it's Michael Moore, any celebrity that lends his or her voice or money to to the Flint crisis keeps it prevalent, keeps it relevant. And, you know, the legislature in Flint is primarily Republican and the legislature in Flint has what they've described themselves or their lawyers have described as Flint fatigue. And, you know, if you're a Flint mom whose kid was brain damaged from lead poisoning, you don't want to hear the words Flint fatigue. And so I think that that in terms of of stars or star power, what's good is keeping the story relevant. I think for, you know, for for folks in the community who don't have the same cachet as as Will Smith or his children or Draymond Green or Dave Chappelle or, or whomever, you know, just keeping the story relevant, you know, retweeting when you see on Twitter something about Flint, you know, asking questions on on social media about what's happening in Flint and sort of just keeping yourself abreast of the fact that five years after the crisis started in 2014, even though not everybody knew about it at the time, they still don't have clean water. You know, they, they still don't trust their government. And the other thing that's really important for people to think of even even beyond the Flint crisis and how they can and how they can really remain involved and, and, and involved in a way that moves the needle is we have to, as a community, be able to be critical of our leaders, regardless of what their party is. And so for me, I'm, I'm an extremely liberal sort of left leaning American who would almost always vote for a Democrat. This just doesn't matter. I, I would vote. 
But the reality is, is that it doesn't matter what party you're a part of or what party your leaders are a part of, because this can happen and this can be put on a community irrespective of party. So a great example of that is in, in Flint, the governor was a Republican and we've already talked about him a little bit. But in New York City, you know, the mayor is a Democrat. He's running for president. He, he touts himself as the first progressive. In Newark, New Jersey, where, where a crisis is, is really brewing, the mayor is a Democrat. The governor is a Democrat. And our Democratic leaders in cities that are primarily Democratic in terms of, of voter registration and in terms of just political preference, those leaders never seem to be held to the same standard as what we hold Republicans to as, as Democrats. And so I think regardless of party, whether you're a, a Republican, a Democrat, an independent, you should not give passes to your leaders if they share your D or your R before your name. And, and more than anything, as just regular members of the community, I think that's the best way that people can, can help Flint and the next Flint and the Flint after that is by making sure you hold your leaders accountable, irrespective of what party you and they belong to. And that's, that's good stuff. And honestly, it's easy stuff. It's easy stuff to do. It's, uh, it's making sure that uh, accountability matters in, in, our, in our government. And yeah, it's it's using social media wisely. Thanks for that, Corey. Appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, man. And and I I had a a follow up too to to base on what you talked about because it's great to hear about um that you know that celebrity impact and like and you know kind of trend charity actually has a a tangible result. But I mean, um, like you said, Jaden Smith uh is still donating um water filters in Flint, even though. Um, allegedly, if you read the news, the water quality has allegedly been restored. But why? Why is his presence still necessary? And I guess what I'm saying by that is like, why is this still a thing? Even though, by all reports, like, no, everything's everything's back on track for you to be normal. So I think it's more a matter of perception in the community than it is reality in the community. This is a, a community that has been lied to uh, for so many years that even if they're being told the water is okay now to consume. They simply don't believe it. And who can blame them? You know, for, for three or four years, they were certainly misled when it came to the water. And I think that, you know, the donation of water or the donation of filters, it gives, you know, putting a filter, you know, putting a filter on a, on a faucet, it may have a placebo effect, which sounds crazy, but it may not be necessary, but it gives people peace of mind. And if you try and live for a week or a day or 10 hours in your own home using nothing but bottled water, you're going to see how absolutely difficult it is from brushing your teeth to washing yourself in a shower to cooking food. It's, it's almost impossible. And so when you combine the difficulty of utilizing bottled water versus tap water, with the lack of trust that exists in these communities, be it Flint, NYCHA, New Jersey, and Newark, you know, anybody that can help provide a little bit of relief in terms of how you look at the crisis, if you're, if you're in the crisis, is beneficial. I want to not even shift the focus, but also just bring focus to a, another side of this, which is you, we've been talking a lot about the people that you represent and uh, the victims, but also... You are you are prosecuting, but that also means that there are defenders as well. And and I'm interested in the fact that there's, for I'd say a a younger, more progressive demographic, there's been kind of a philosophical shift in how they view uh, lawyers and people who are who are working with the law. And so I mean, I know in like my parents' generation, you know, prosecutors were kind of they were the good guys. They were they were doing the will of the Lord, you know, kind of putting the bad guys in jail and 
now there's kind of a younger generation who, you know, fully admits, like, you know, watches shows on Netflix like The Confession Tapes or The Staircase and these and a lot of these true pro, uh, true crime podcasts, which kind of talk about instead, like, no, let's uh, let's fix uh, when justice has, has been has been done poorly. Let's fix that. And I, I wonder how you reconcile kind of these perceptions or this philosophical shift as someone who is you are objectively, I think we can all agree, doing good work. But there are also people on the other side who I'm sure in many regards are good people themselves, but they are working to defend the city, working to defend the people that we are perceiving as like, well, these are people in the wrong and the bad guys. Yeah. So so two things. One, you know, I think that everything you described and the shift in perception is is true. Uh, I'm, I'm really lucky that, or at least in, in the context of the question, I don't really deal with criminal law. So Flint, Flint sort of has two tracks. You have the civil litigation, which really is just about fixing pipes and paying people money. And then you have the criminal litigation with deal, which deals potentially with taking away someone's freedom and liberty by, by prosecuting them criminally and potentially putting them in jail. So, mm-hmm. you know, for me personally, I I look at the lawyers who are on the other side of my litigation, the civil litigation, and I think uh, I, I look at them kindly and I try and treat them with respect. I mean, they're they're just doing their job. They're they're literally anytime I file a lawsuit, somebody's got to defend the people that I'm filing the case against. And while you know a, a city who's being sued or a state that's being sued. You know, those are entities, a company that's being sued. Those are entities when you're suing individuals and there are individuals that have been sued in my cases who work for the government. I don't take I don't take lightly what it must feel like for that individual who probably has a husband or a wife and children somewhere in, in Michigan earning fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year working for the government to get a knock on their door one day and have it be a sheriff that's going to serve them with a lawsuit, which alleges that you know they they cause brain damage to thousands of children i mean that that is i think most people are good you know i think even people who do bad things are generally in their at their core i hope that somewhere in them there's there's goodness and i try very hard to to look look at what i'm doing from the perspective of the people that i'm suing and try and remember that that's a dad that's a mom with kids that the lawyer representing them has hopefully gotten to know them in the same meaningful way as I've gotten to know my clients, and they deserve to be fought for. They deserve to be represented. They deserve to be defended because our system is great and it works because both sides have to work really hard to either prove or disprove certain things, at least in the civil context. So for me, I just always try and put myself in someone else's shoes. I'm not always good at it. You know, I get hot, I get angry, I get frustrated, I feel like you know, someone may be being disingenuous or I wish they would just tell me what the right answer is and they're hiding it from me or they're playing coy. But the reality is, is over four years in litigating these cases, some of the people I've become the closest with just because I spend so much time with them are some of the lawyers that represent the people I'm suing. And it's not because they think I'm right, but they're just doing their job or I think they're wrong and they're just doing their job. Oftentimes we both think we're right or we both think we're at least a little bit right and we're doing our job. But I don't take personally the the idea that someone could be a very good lawyer, but but also representing someone I think has done something very bad. One thing that I am curious about is um, 
this is obviously a, a podcast for a church, and we often engage in uh, a lot of guests that where the topic is a little bit more the- theological based, and have to admit that Christians a lot of times like to kind of think that they are the gatekeepers of morality, they are the gatekeepers of what is right and what is good. Um, but as someone who who does not identify as a Christian, what is it for you that kind of, I don't want to say keeps you going, but that you hold up as an, an image or a past story, which is your drive for social justice as a thing you want to achieve? What is the thing that keeps you driving? Because it seems like, you know, uh, whether it's non-believers or believers, we can still work towards the same path of equity and of social justice. So you, what is it for you that keeps you going on that path? Yeah, so I'm not I'm not completely sure that, you know, I would even classify myself as a non-believer. I mean, I definitely believe that there's something much bigger than all of us and that there is um, a, a, a universe, a universal spirit and kindness and goodness in everybody. And I believe there's something well beyond this life. I think that, you know, everybody that that is alive, including myself, should be striving to be better, to be the best that we can be, and to be the kindest and most compassionate people we can be to to our families, to our neighbors, to strangers, to the downtrodden, and to everybody we encounter. For me, that comes from so many different sources. And, you know, the one that has stuck in my mind throughout this whole conversation, and I was just talking a few minutes ago about trying to be empathetic and compassionate to the people that I sue. I, rem- I remember reading the diary of Anne Frank when I was really young. And I, I remember this part where she said that, you know, I'm paraphrasing someone who was much younger and more articulate than I am now. But she essentially said that even with all of this evil around me, even as I'm hiding in this, this attic, even as I'm in this hole and I know they're coming to kill me, I still believe inherently that people are good. And I, I genuinely believe that. I see it every day. I see it on the subway when you know, someone needs a swipe and, and they really they really need one and someone gives it to them. I see it when people help each other with strollers going up the stairs. I see it on the streets of New York. I see it in Brooklyn. I, I see it wherever I am. And, you know, we're living in a time where, you know, it goes without saying, you know, I, I think that every podcast that's being played right now everywhere in this country or in the world has something to do with, you know, we're living in a crazy time and there's crazy leaders and how do we get here? But I still believe that inherently people are good, that all they want is for other people to be healthy, for other people to be happy, for their own families to be to be okay. And I find my strength and my comfort in the belief that it takes a village to raise one. And my kids are screwed if me and my wife are the only ones that are raising them. You know, if we're only if we're only depending on ourselves and don't trust the world out there that our kids are going to be okay, then we're setting ourselves up to be severely disappointed because we don't have enough time in the day and we don't spend enough time and energy with our kids because they're gone most of the time in school or camp or with their friends that you have to have faith in people. And for me, that comes from just an inherent belief that came from my parents and from the things I've read and just from my own core beliefs that have developed over 42 years that people are inherently good. I was going to say, I think most days I believe that. <laughs> but yeah, no, that's yet. not, it's not easy. You know, it's, yeah. it's, 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 it's not easy. It's, 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 
it's actually the most difficult thing to believe because most of the time, you know, it's, it's like poker. I mean, you know, I, I could play a thousand hands of poker and the ones I remember, the hands I remember are the ones where I lost. I, you know, I, I don't remember the ones I've won. And so on a daily basis, I think the things that stick out to us most of the time are the things we got wrong or the hurt that we felt or the mistakes that we made or the missteps that we had. And we very rarely just focus our attention on all the good things that happened on how great today was. You know, I had a, I had an amazing salad today. It was just like a, but like, you know, instead I think about how my email screwed up and how I had something that was due at six o'clock that didn't get out till six ten, and tomorrow talking to the tech guy at my office about how do I, but instead of focusing on the good things, the easy things, and you know, not the, the salad was just sort of a, an example, but you know, I think that it's so easy for us every day to focus on the bad stuff that happens rather than the good stuff. And, and it's just, we have to fight that. We have to fight through that. All right, thanks so much for your good work, man. Really appreciate, uh, really appreciate what you're doing uh, no. to see justice, to see justice for uh, for the least of these, as, as we say in our Christian circles. And we appreciate you being on. Thank you, guys. Be well.